1 Kings chapter 18. So before we jump into the text today, what I wanted to start with was a quick review of what we talked about last week in 1 Kings 17. You see, last week we see God calling Elijah uh, to take a great step of faith. But before he does that, he starts doing an amazing work in his life. He starts preparing him for this step. And so we see at the beginning of what we studied last week that God calls Elijah to go and confront uh, this evil king Ahab, um, who is now ruling with his wife over uh, the nation of Israel during this time. He is pointing his nation away from God and towards the worship of Baal. So for 200 years, um, the Israel has started worshiping these false idols. They've been under uh, wicked rulership. But it says in the Bible that Ahab was worse than all those guys before him. He is by far the worst. Not only that, he's married to this evil woman Jezebel that is just as wicked as he is, if not worse uh, than he is. They're killing prophets of God. They're pushing people away from God and towards Baal. And so God raises up this man, Elijah, whose name literally means my God is Jehovah. And he says, this is the one that I'm going to use to raise up and point the nation of Israel back to me. And so one man he brings up to take this great step of faith. So on your outline, in review, I want you to write this from last week, God must work in me before he can work through me. God must work in me before he can work through me. So before 1 Kings 18 that we're going to talk about today, there was 1 Kings 17 that we talked about last week. We see God call him to go confront Ahab. And then he then says to Elijah, I want you to leave and go to Kareth. When he goes there, he says, I'm going to provide for you through the brook. I'm going to provide for you through the ravens. And so Elijah gets there and God supernaturally meets him there and provides for him and meets his needs. He protects him out in the wilderness, but the word kareth literally means to cut away or to cut down. And so what God is doing is he's bringing into the place of humility. He is working in his life. He is carving things away. It's a time of pruning in Elijah's life to prepare him for his next step. And some of us in here today are in that position right now. You're uncomfortable. You don't know what God's doing. You don't know why he's brought you there. You don't know why you're walking through what you're walking through today, but it's because God is pruning you and preparing you for your next step. God has got to work in you before he can work you. So then his next step, God comes to Elijah and says, I want you to leave Kareth and I want you to go to Zarephath. And when he gets there, he meets this woman. She's a widow and she is going to help provide for his needs uh, during his time there. And the word Zarephath literally means the refinery. And so this is a place where he goes from the cutting away to the refining of God, again, preparing him one step at a time for the great work that he's about to call him to and pointing the nation of Israel back to him. And so he meets this widow. She provides for him supernaturally. God shows up. It says that you know when, when Elijah gets to Zarephath, he says, go get me some water and go make me a cake. And she says, I'm literally about to go make my last cake for my son and I, and we're about to die. It's all we have. This is it. But in a step of faith, she trusts him in his word. She was not a follower of God at the time, but she steps out and says, I'll do what you've called me to do. And it says that God shows up, and each day he showed up when it was time for her to make food. There was just enough oil There was just enough flour, but God showed up and he met that need because she trusted and took a step of faith. And so God used Elijah to impact her faith as often God uses us to impact the faith of those around us. And it says that after that, her son, a few months after that, passes away. And we see that for the first time in recorded history, Elijah prays over her dead son and God raises him back to life. And so God had a great plan that even in the midst of this young boy's death, He's pointing people back to him. He says, I've got a greater plan in place. And so Elijah prays three times over the boy. He raises back to life. And she says at the very end of chapter 17, surely the word of the Lord is in your mouth. And so she is pointed towards 
God because Elijah had faith and trusted him even in that monumental task of raising this boy to life. But God was still working in his life, increasing Elijah's faith for his next and greatest step of faith. <clears throat> so that brings us to 1 Kings chapter 18. The first 16 verses, I'm going to give you a quick flyover of what happens. We're going to start off in verse 17 today. But basically, there is a gentleman named Obadiah. He is one of the king's court. He works for King Ahab. We know that Obadiah is a follower of God. Now, we don't know if this is the Obadiah from the book of Obadiah in the New, uh, in the New Testament, or the Old Testament, sorry. Um, but we know that he is a follower of God. It says in 1 Kings 18 that he was uh, responsible for hiding prophets of God. He took them and, and protected them from Jezebel and Ahab, who were going around killing all the prophets of God during this time. So we know that he was a follower of God. And oftentimes God would take his people and kind of plant them uh, with the enemy. You saw it with Daniel. He takes him and uses him in the, in the, in the, in the uh, government during that time to make a big impact, even though he, the king was not a follower of God. So he always implants his people in there. Obadiah is one of those people. So Ahab goes to Obadiah one day and he says, we need to go find Elijah. For about three years, a little over three years, they've been in this drought. People are dying. They can't raise their crops. Their cattle are dying. It's an economic crisis. People are, are dying. And so the king's like, that's it. I've had enough. We've got to find Elijah and put an end to this right now. He's facing that pressure. So he goes to Obadiah and says, go find Elijah. So Ahab goes one way. Obadiah goes the other. And sure enough, Obadiah comes across Elijah. And when they meet, Elijah says to Obadiah, I want you to bring King Ahab to me. And that's where we pick up in chapter 18, verse 17. So Ahab comes up to Elijah for the first time since he saw him three and a half years ago. The last time he saw Elijah, Elijah told him that it's not going to rain in the land until I tell you so. So Ahab does not love Elijah. They're not best friends, but this is the first time they see each other, and this is how the conversation starts. Verse 17, it says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. And so we see this first confrontation for three and a half years. Ahab's had to think about what Elijah's told him. And the first thing he says to Elijah is, this is your fault. Look what you're doing. Because of you, we are stuck in this horrible situation. You need to fix it. And how does Elijah respond? He says, no, it's not my fault. It's your fault. You and your father's house continually point people away from the living God toward the worship of Baal. And so many times in our life, that's the same situation that we face, is that we continually look for the problem or what's causing the, the, the issues in my life. It's this person's fault. It's this situation. It's the, the hand I was dealt. This is what's going on in my life. But we refuse to look at the root of the problem. And that's where Ahab was. Elijah's like, no, you are the problem. See, sometimes we make bad decisions and we sin and we make mistakes, and that's the root of our problem. We have to get to the root of our problem before God can begin to work in that situation. So Elijah's trying to point him back to God, saying, you are the problem. So the word troubler there, he's, like, he's calling Elijah a snake. You're a serpent. You're, you're, you're trickery. You're doing this bad thing to me to ruin my life, to ruin my reputation. He says, no, it's your fault because you're pointing people away from God. You see, it's very clear in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, the very first commandment, and it's first for a reason, you guys can probably recite off the top of your head, but God said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. There should be nothing in your life that you place above God. 
And Ahab in this situation is pointing people away from God and towards Baal. And so many times in our life today, we may not worship a, a, a literal other God like Buddha or Allah or whoever that God might be, but for some of us, there are things and idols in our life that we are putting in place in our life above God. I think that's where most of us are, where most of us struggle today. It's not a literal God like Baal or a small g God like Baal, but it is something that we are putting in our lives that we worship above God. And we're going to see Elijah. That's kind of the theme of this whole story, is how Elijah continually points people back to God and away from their idols. And he continually addresses this problem throughout the scripture we'll study today. But in verse 19, it goes on. He says, Now then, send and gather to me all of Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table, these people that you love and support, Ahab. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long, underline this, will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people, underlined, did not answer him a word. And so Elijah confronts the prophets, he confronts the people of Israel, and he says, look, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? That literally means how long will you jump back and forth between two forks in the road? How long will you say, I love God, but continue to live your life for Baal? How long will you keep doing that? You see, the Israel's problem at this point wasn't that they were worshiping Baal. It's that they were saying, I love God and we are God's people, but they were living a life contrary to that. They couldn't make up their mind as to who they wanted to worship. You see, they loved God and everything he had to offer, and he'd done all these amazing things for them in the past. But they really loved the pleasure of worshiping Baal. They loved the things they got to do when they worshiped Baal. They loved the life they got to live here on earth when they worship Baal. And so they were stuck between Baal and God. And so Elijah says, how long will you bounce back and forth between God and Baal? If God is your God, then fully devote yourself 100% to worshiping him. But if he's not, go worship Baal 100%. Give your life to Baal. Don't say you love God and worship Baal. It's either 100% all in for God or you're 100% all in for your other God, whatever that might be. And that's where a lot of us find ourselves today is we say, I love God, I want him to show up in my situation. But we don't want to live our lives 100% devoted for him because that means I don't get to do the things that maybe I love to do. But in Revelation chapter 3, it says this, to the church in Laodicea it is written, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, I will not, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You see, God hates, hates, hates above anything else when we say, I love God, but we want to worship him on my terms. When I want to worship my idol, when I want to worship my God and put that in place of God and say, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm going to live my life completely contrary to what he's called me to do. You can't keep one foot in both camps. Elijah says, how long will you bounce back and forth between each fork in the road? And like I said before, many of us, our idol is not necessarily another God or physical thing that we worship, but a lot of times it's material possession, a lot of times it's our family, a lot of times it's the stuff, success. Those are the idols that we tend to put in place of God in our lives. And for so many of us, we find ourselves in that struggle, myself included, there are things that, that I struggle with. You know, when, when I always tell my wife, for instance, if we ever won the lottery, which by the way, did anybody play the Powerball last night? 
I, somebody told me last service there was a winner. Um, are, you, are you in here? No? If you are, come talk to me later. But I've always said, which I don't really play the lottery, but if I did win the lottery, I'd realize why God doesn't let me win. You see, I've always told my wife, I don't really care about my house. Give me this 1,000 square foot shanty somewhere. I don't care. But I'm going to have like a 10,000 square foot garage attached to it. See, I love cars. I love trucks. And I would like have one for every other day of the week, every day of the week. And that would be my problem. So I know exactly why God has never blessed me with financial wealth. 100%. 100%. But that would be awesome, wouldn't it? To have anything you want, whenever you want it, whatever. But the problem with that is when that becomes what I live for, it will constantly let me down. It will constantly let me down. When that becomes my sole focus and my driving force in life. You see, there's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with blessing. There's nothing wrong with those things. But when that becomes my driving focus and I put that in place of God, whatever that is that I put in place of God, that's when it becomes a problem. You see, if it's financial success, then guess what? Go into debt, swipe the credit card, steal if you have to. By all means, don't give, because that's contrary to what you want. But be 100% devoted to it. Really sell yourself out to that idol. And that's what Elijah is saying. Don't say you love God and then live contrary to that. If you love God, you'll trust him with your finances. If you love God, you'll trust him to provide. You'll love God as the widow did. It might not be a million dollars in your bank account today. It might be just enough to get you by because you trusted him with that step of faith. But God will show up and he will provide and meet your needs in that situation. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, it says, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. All, 100%, every part of your being should be given to the worship and devotion of God. I love my family. There are times that they can creep up into that number one spot. But he says, you know what? They're number two. God is always number one. We worship God first. Everything else is second, third, fourth, fifth down the list. God should have all of my attention, all of my worship. Verse 22, it goes on to say, Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen, and let them choose one ox for themselves. They can have whatever one they want, and cut it up, and place it on the wood, and put no fire under it. And I'll prepare the other ox, and lay it on the wood, and I will not put put fire under it. Then you call in the name of God, and I will call in the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people said, that's a good idea. So he says, all right, let's put them to the test. Let's test God, and let's test Baal. And we'll see which God shows up. So we're going to get an ox. We're going to make a sacrifice. We're not going to put any fire underneath it. And whichever God sends fire first, that is the true God. And so imagine Elijah standing on Mount Carmel. He's in front of 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of the Asherah. He's in front of the evil King Ahab. He's in front of the nation of Israel, who's pretty much fully devoted to Baal at this time. And he's the lone person standing up there saying, God is Jehovah. God is alive. God is the one that's going to show up today. He says, we talked about last week, God often raises up one man to make an impact. That one man, that one woman, that one person might be sitting in this room today where God wants to use you to do something amazing. You see, what happens is so many times we say, God could not use me. I could not make an impact. I'm just TJ. I have no platform. I can't do anything. Why would God use me? 
But God has a track record of losing, using those that, that don't see themselves as successful, that aren't successful in the world's eyes, but they're right where God wants them to be, ready to take a step of faith, ready to trust him in his word. And God wants to use you to make a great impact, as he does with Elijah. One man in front of all these people who stands up in faith and says, I'm going to believe God. I'm going to trust his word. I'm going to let him use me. I'm going to let him work through me to point people back to him. One person. There's a couple of things about this sacrifice I find interesting. Number one, as I believe Elijah was strategic in choosing the oxen for the sacrifice. You see, in the book of Leviticus, it lays out all the guidelines for sacrifice and for the priests and all that. And it says that before a priest enters the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, they must make a sacrifice of an oxen to atone for their sins. And so he chooses an oxen here to sacrifice, to be burnt up in the fire, because he's inviting God's presence here, and he wants to be right before God. And so he says, choose an oxen, put it there, and when God shows up, he's going to refine it with fire. And number two, Baal was a fertility god believed to control the weather, so in turn control the crops. All the problems they were having, Baal was the god um, that would take care of that. And for three years, uh, three and a half years, that Baal was, was missing. He wasn't showing up. He wasn't sending rain. So this would have been an embarrassment for the prophets of Baal. They're waiting for their god to show up. They're not sure why he's not showing up. Um, but he's basically putting all of the balls in their court saying, look, I'm going to give Baal every single advantage they can have. You know, he's the weather god. He can send a lightning bolt and strike that thing up with fire and off you go. You know, you choose the oxen. You do whatever you want. And we'll see if your god shows up. He's trying to give them every single advantage. And then in verse 25, it goes on to say this. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first for you or many and call the name of your god, but put no fire under it. And they took the ox which was given to them and prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. O Baal, answer us. Underline, there was no voice and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they made. So they're jumping around, calling on Baal to show up. Then in verse 27, I love this. It says, and about noon, then Elijah underlined, mocked them and said, call out with a loud voice for he is God. Either he is occupied and gone aside or, or is on a journey or perhaps he's asleep. And needs to be awakened. So he starts mocking them, saying, you're dancing around like a bunch of idiots. He's like, you know, maybe your God, when he says he's gone aside, maybe he's literally using the restroom. Maybe he just needs to finish up. Give him a second to wrap that up, and he'll, he'll show up. Or maybe he's on a trip. He's on the beach, you know, sipping his drink with his little umbrella in it, and, you know, enjoying himself, kicking back, relaxing. But he'll show up, he'll be here, or taking a nap. And so you kind of see Elijah kick back with his feet up, just watching the show at this point, saying, you know, your God will be here. How many of you guys have that supernatural spiritual gift of, of sarcasm? in here this morning. This is your vindication right here. And my, my wife tells me all the time, man, you're really gifted at that. And I'm like, I know. So, you know, Elijah is my man. You know, he's got this supernatural gift and he loves just cutting them down and saying, well, maybe he'll show up. Of course he will. <clears throat> but it really frustrates the prophets of Baal. In verse 28, it goes on to say this. It says, they cried with a loud voice. They get more intense and says, and they cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances and the blood gushed out on them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering and the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. For about six hours they carried on, calling out to their God, worshiping their idol, saying, Show up, I believe you'll be here. They're jumping around like idiots, jumping on the altar. It says they start cutting themselves. See, it was customary that if the blood of the sacrifice didn't get their God's attention, then my blood will. So they start cutting themselves and pouring their blood onto the sacrifice, trying to get the attention 
of Baal. But it says there was no voice. No one showed up and no one was paying attention. Elijah's trying to bring to light multiple things about the idols that they were worshiping, but also the idols in our life as we bring that into today's context, the things that we worship. There are three things that I believe Elijah is showing us about our idols. Number one, the first thing that we see is you have to work hard to please your idol. You have to work hard to please your idol. It doesn't come easy. It doesn't just show up. It says they're dancing around like idiots. They're jumping around, calling upon them. They start cutting themselves. They have to work hard to please their idol. And for us, whatever our idol is in our life, it is an endless pursuit of happiness through the worship of that thing, whatever it might be. If it's finances and we continually pursue that, guess what? There's always more. And there are times in life where, guess what? You can be the richest person in the world, but that won't bring you healing. That won't protect you. And so when we worship that, we will constantly be let down by our idol. And it's an endless pursuit. You have to work hard to please your idol. In 1 Peter 2, verse 11, Peter says this. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, and I love this, which wage war against your soul. Which wage war against your soul. It is an endless pursuit for your soul. Sin won't give up. Your idols won't go away. But it's constantly going to be in the back of your mind. Are you going to worship God or are you going to worship your idol? It's a war for your soul. Number two, the second thing we learn is your idol will push you towards destruction. Your idol will push you towards destruction. You see, Satan knows if he has lost the battle and you've given your life to Christ, you know, he can't kill you, but he'll do everything he can to destroy you, to frustrate you, to make you angry, to point you away from God, to get you distracted. He'll do everything he can to push you towards destruction. You see, families are ripped up a part of this. Integrity is lost. Our morals are thrown away when we try and live in pursuit of that idol. Your idol will push you towards destruction. And Jesus summed it up best in John 10.10. He said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan wants to destroy your life. He wants to steal from you. He wants to do everything he can to get your focus off of him. But Jesus says this, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. Number three, false gods promise what the true God provides. False gods promise what the true God provides. See, the false gods will say, I'll give you happiness through this, or I'll protect you, or I'll give you all the things that you want. But Jesus says, I have come that you might have life to the fullest. You just have to trust me. You have to trust my step of faith. You have to follow me and follow my commands, and I will provide. I will meet your needs. I will protect you. I will heal you. False gods promise what the true God provides. So at the time of the evening sacrifice around 3 p.m., it says Elijah has had enough. In verse 30, it says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar to God, which had been torn down. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel had torn down all of the, uh, the, the um, altars which had been set up for God. They tore them all down and destroyed them. So he repairs the one that was there. In verse 31, it says, Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And so at this point in the history of Israel, they're split into two nations. The northern nation of Israel was made up of ten tribes. The southern nation of Judah was made up of two. So twelve tribes made up the entire nation of Israel. So in honor of that, uh, Elijah says, I'm going to make up a, an altar of twelve stones, because God, even though we are worshiping Baal as, as the ten tribes, the northern tribe, God is still the God of the entire nation of Israel. So he sets this up, and in verse 32 it says, So with stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar 
large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. Water flowed around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. So he takes this sacrifice that he's about to make. He pours water all over it. He surrounds it with water, again, putting every advantage into Baal's court. He says, look, if this is going to light on fire, God is going to have to show up to make it happen because this thing is soaked and there's water everywhere. It's not going to be me lighting a match or using some trickery to make it happen, but God is going to show up and make this happen. So he puts another handicap in place, and he's trusting God to show up and do this great thing and trying to prove it to them how great his God is. But we also see that he starts to prepare himself as he approaches this. He doesn't just say, cast down fire, but we see him approach God with humility. You see, over the past couple of years, God has again been working in his life, refining him, bringing humility into his life. And then he stands on top of the mountain alone at this one point, ready to call down fire from heaven. God's got ready to do this amazing thing in his life. And here's how he responds. He says, at the time of the offering and the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And I have done all these things, underline, at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. And so on the back of your outline, there's a couple of keys to faith-filled prayer that we're going to learn from the life of Elijah that I want you to write down. I believe some of you have things in your life that you're seeking God for right now, and there are things that you need to do in your life, in your prayer life, to seek him and to trust him to work in that situation. Whatever's burdening your heart today, to seek him in faith, trusting him to work in that situation as Elijah did. You see in the book of James chapter 5, It says this about Elijah. It says, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was just like you and me. He wasn't some superhero. He was just a guy with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on earth for three years and six months. He was a guy that trusted God, that believed God at his word, that believed his promises 100% sold out, devoted to him, And he said, God, I want you to withhold the rain. And God withheld the rain for three and a half years. And when he says, God, I want you to show up, God showed up. Because he sought him in prayer. God prepared him for that step. And he trusted him when it was time to take that step of faith. So there's a couple of things that we learned. Number one, Elijah's prayer was short and in alignment with God's word. Elijah's prayer was short and in alignment with God's word. You see, there's nothing mystical about the length of our prayers. He goes to him and very briefly says, God, you are God. I want you to show up. It's not me, it's you. I want you to point people back to you. And that's all he says before God shows up. It's a short prayer, but he also says, you're doing, I'm doing these things at your word. It's not me. It's not what I want. It's not what, what I think you should do. He goes, I'm just trusting you and your word and that you're going to show up and make this happen. So it's short and in alignment with God's word. Notice the difference between the prophets of Baal jumping around making idiots of themselves and the humility of Elijah going to God and saying, God, I want you to show up right now. The second thing we notice is that Elijah prayed with boldness. Elijah prayed with boldness. His prayer was expectant, and it was based on belief. It was expectant and based on belief. He expected God to show up and work in this situation. 
And for so many of us, our prayer life would be radically changed if we truly trusted God to show up. And we prayed expectantly, not that God, please show up or you might show up, but God, I know you'll show up. God, I know you will heal. God, I know you'll provide. God, I know you will work on behalf of this person. God, I know you can bring salvation to this person. Pray with boldness and belief that God, when he promises, I am the Lord that heals, that he in fact will heal you. Pray with expectant boldness to make that happen as Elijah did. In verse 38, it goes on, it says, and the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust that licked up all the water that was in trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on the faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Then Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. Elijah brought them down to the brook at Kishon, and he slew them there. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says, false prophets counsel rebellion against God and should be put to death. In accordance with the law, he immediately says, take these men and put them to death. And so they do that. They take them down and kill them. This is a little bit of retribution for Elijah, because again, it said throughout the time of Ahab and Jezebel that hundreds and hundreds of prophets of God were killed. And so there's a little bit of justice in this for Elijah as well. And in verse 41, it goes on to say, Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there's the sound of roar of a heavy shower. He said, Go relax, the rain is coming. So Ahab went to eat and drink. But Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel, and he crouched down. And on earth, he put his face between his knees. Number three, the third thing we see is that Elijah prayed with humility. He prayed with humility. He says he put his head between his knees, and he goes to God and starts praying to him and asking him to send the rain. So he takes this posture of humility before God. He retreats to be by himself. He takes a servant with him. Then in verse 43 it says, he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go back, unlined seven times. On your outline, Elijah prayed with persistence. Elijah prayed with persistence. He believed he would show up, but when he didn't show up the first time, it says he went back again and again and again, seven times before God showed up. We saw this last week as he prayed over the, the widow's son as he died in 1 Kings 17, 21. It says, then he stretched himself upon the Lord three times and called to the Lord and said, oh Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. It took three times for God to show up, but God was working in his life. He trusted that God would show up. So that when he took this next step and said, God, I want you to send the rain, and after three times he didn't show up, it says he went back a fourth time and a fifth time and a sixth time. Then on the seventh time it said, here comes the rain. And so he prayed with persistence. It's that continual ask, and it shall be given to you. It's not ask once and hope. It is ask. And if he doesn't show up, ask again and believe he'll show up. If he doesn't show up, ask again, and he'll show up. He asked seven times before God showed up and sent the rain. See, most of us get nervous, and that's when we start to run away and we stop asking. But keep asking. Be persistent, as Elijah was persistent. In verse 44, it says, came about the seventh time that he said, behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand coming from the sea. It wasn't like a literal hand cloud coming up, but if you held your hand out in front of you and you have a, you know, about the size of a cloud, that size comes up over the sea. And he says, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. In a little while, the sky grew black and clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins, and he outran Ahab to Jezreel. On your outline, number five, God's promises are given to ignite our faith and our prayer life. God's promises are given to ignite our faith 
in our prayer life. You see, his promises aren't there so we can say, God, I know you're healed, and I'm just going to sit there and wait for you to show up. They're there because we are to expect God to show up and bring healing. We are to expect God to show up and provide. We are to expect God to, to whatever the burden is in your life right now that you're praying for, to work in that situation. And that should excite you. It should ignite your faith to the point where you are seeking God, saying, God, you said in your word, you're the one that heals. And I'm going to trust that you are going to heal. I'm going to believe that you are going to bring healing in that, situ- in that situation. You're going to ignite your faith and push you to prayer. You see, prayer is hard work. I get that. But you see, Elijah did not give up. He kept going back to God. And he believed God. And so he kept going back to God and trusting God. For some of us, prayer becomes natural. We can just sit down and pray all day. For a lot of us, prayer is not so easy. We struggle to pray. We struggle to seek God. We struggle to trust God in our situation. I completely understand that. But imagine today when you're praying for your marriage, you're praying for your kids, you're praying for, uh, again, put your burden there, whatever it is. Imagine if you went to God with the boldness of Elijah and you said, God, I know you're going to work in this situation. How different your life would be, how different your prayer life would be, and how different that burden would be and that situation would be in your life. How God wants to show up and he wants to work in your life. He wants to show up and do something miraculous. That's why he made these promises to us as his followers to say, Pray, expecting and believing him to show up. It's said in, that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, before he was arrested, he was praying to his father. And it said that he was praying so intensely that blood literally poured out of his pores because he was praying so intently to his father. Some of us, we need to get on our knees and humble ourselves and pray to the point where we're sweating over the burden and the situation that God has on your heart right now. Next week, we're going to do a three-day uh, fast and prayer. Some of you guys don't want to do that one bit. But God is calling you to take that step of faith. As you begin this year and you have that burden on your heart, that person, that situation, whatever it is, God's calling you to take a step and trust him and fast and pray over that burden. I would encourage you, if you're that person that's sitting here right now and says, I don't want to do that, I've never done that before, I don't know what it is, we'll help walk you through it. Write fast in your connection card. We're going to send you encouragement. We're going to pray for you. We're going to pray alongside you. But God wants you to take that step and trust him to work in that situation. The interesting about the story of Elijah is it doesn't end there. God does this amazing thing through him. It says he brings up to Mount Carmel. He sends the fire down. He points the nation of Israel back to Jesus or back to God. And he says, you know what? God's done that before. Unfortunately for Israel, it's not a long-standing thing. They, of course, go back to worshiping idols at some point. God shows up again. But the interesting thing for me is Elijah. God does this great work through him. He takes him away and he prepares him and he cuts him down and he lifts him up and he does this great thing. He takes a step of faith. But it says at the end of chapter 18 that he ran to Jezreel. It's the first time you'll notice in Elijah's story that God didn't show up and say, Elijah, I want you to pack up and go to Jezreel. See, he said, go to, go, to the, go to Kareth, go to Zarephath. I want you to go and confront Ahab. This is the first time you see him go without God saying, go to Jezreel. In the beginning of chapter 19, it says that Elijah, he goes there and he confronts Ahab and he confronts Jezebel. And Jezebel looks him in the face and says, I'm going to kill you. And after God does this amazing work in his life, he performs this amazing miracle. You think Elijah would say, bring it. Instead, it says that he ran away. And he hid. And he climbs up the mountainside and he finds a cave and he tucks himself away because he didn't trust God to protect him. He didn't trust God to show up. 
And for so many of us in here today, God has done an amazing thing in your life. But you're scared. You're running from God. Rather than running to him, you're running away because I don't know if God's going to show up this time. Even though he just showed up last time, I don't know if he's going to show up this time. But the great thing about Elijah, again, is that the story still doesn't end there. He runs away, but it says God shows up in that still small voice and speaks to him, and God uses him again. He brings him back. He leads him back to him and does another great act through him. And that can be your story, too. If you're on the backside of that blessing and you're running from God, God still has a plan for your life. God can still use you and will still use you as he did Elijah. And if I have the chance to come back here in a couple months and teach again, we're going to walk through that part of Elijah's life together. Because it's so important to note that so many people in Scripture are used by God, yet their story doesn't end with that great success. A lot of them end in failure because, like you and me, they were just people that struggled day to day to give 100% of their trust and faith to God. But God still uses them. God still brings them back. God still loves you. God still has a plan and still wants to do something great through you. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we've had to take a look at the life of Elijah. God, it's stories like this that remind me that your spirit indwells each one of us, Father, and as we seek you for a situation, a burden in our life, God, your spirit is actively working, praying alongside of us, working in our lives, working in that situation, Father. And God, your promises won't return void. But God, you want to heal. You want to bless. You want to provide, Father. You want to build our faith. And so God, I pray for each person here that is seeking you, for whatever that situation might be, that they will take a step of faith and trust you in that situation. And God, that you will show up, as it says in your word. Father, I pray today that as we uh, prepare next week to, to start this fast together, God, that you will do some amazing things amongst your people that week, Father, that you'll continue to work in this church and the works of the, work in the lives of people here, Father, to do great things, not only in our lives, in our situations, Father, but through this church, in this town, God, through our global reach and our impact in missions around the world, Father. I just pray that you are the reason we are doing this, Father, that we are continually pointing people back to you, God, that you are Lord of our lives, and Father, that whatever situation we face, we are trusting you as Elijah did. Give us boldness, Father, when we pray. May we seek you in everything that we do. Father, thank you for the ways that you bless us. Thank you for sending your son Jesus for us, that we might even be here and have a hope today. We love you, and we're grateful for you, and it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great week, and we will see you next Sunday.